And that means it's time for the first hour of the Dr. and Mrs. Future Show. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. Ladies and gentlemen, KSEO presents the Dr. Future Show. If you would like to join in our show today, you can call us at 831 479 1080. That's 831 479 1080. And now, your host, Dr. Future. Hey, folks, welcome to Election Day America. Yeah. Not hey, that we're going to talk a lot about still it. Still holding together our yeah. beautiful country. Yay! That was fun. Um, yeah. And Boulder Creek was giving away these new stickers for you know I voted. All Ooh, kinds of great you designs. You got the really cool one. I also, it's got a say. redwood tree that could double as a Christmas tree. Yeah, that's kind of it says Mine, I voted. I have yeah. the I where it says I voted. It's all outlined in stars. So very I, nice. I'm very a star nice. today. Yeah. You are a star today. <laughs> It was fun. It was uh, easy and fun. Yeah. One of the things I love about living in Boulder Creek is really a small town. You run into people who are sitting there making sure that the vote you know. is honest yeah. and they're your friends. Right. Not yeah. that you can talk politics with them or anything, but you know, you're well, you see them, catch up with the, the neighbors. It's not the right time and place, That's you true. know. Well, but it's a great time to see people. There is the coffee shop right across the street. That's right. You can take it to the yeah, coffee shop. One of our shop. favorite places. <laughs> Treehouse. Treehouse, yeah. That yeah. Treehouse. Yeah, we love the treehouse. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, oh. Genesis is pretty high op option, too. Oh, I mean, it is. If you Boulder like to Creek is a great outside. place for yeah, hanging out and chowing over baked goods and coffee. Yeah, you get that small town feel, you know? Yeah. It's because it is. Yeah. Yeah, you can cross the highway in the middle of the day without even a crosswalk. It's that um, kind of small town. <laughs> yeah, usually. <laughs> we like it. And we love our parades. The, July 4th uh, parade. July 4th yeah. and the Halloween yeah. costume parade. Those are really big events in our small town. So now that we're in big town of Santa Cruz and we went through the rains to get here, it's really yes, quite something. Yes, we're so dedicated. Yes, the rains. They were quite extensive today. Yeah. And it was no good. I'm not complaining. I'm really happy about that. The only thing I'm sad about was that we weren't able to see the total eclipse of the moon last night. Oh, except on the internet. Well, yes. And it seemed a little bit like this footage they might have been showing was not timely. Well, one of the channels seemed to be playing a, a time, rerun. Right, it a was time. a rerun of a Maybe. lunar eclipse. <laughs> you can't tell the difference. <laughs> <laughs> that's was why disappointing. They do it. <laughs> but uh, it depends was, on what phase you were It was three hours ahead at. of schedule. <laughs> and then, there was a Swami on there that was talking about the eclipse mm -hmm. in terms of... Sad guru. Uh, <laughs> sad guru. He says, you see the entire moon cycles of a month in two, two hours. hours. <laughs> yes, so time is different and food will go bad faster. In your stomach. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite funny. And at that very moment, I was having really bad pains in my stomach because... Oh. Oh, I drank food was, some lemon water and it was like, yeah. it was giving me some kind of, I don't know. Are you sure it wasn't because time was going faster oh, during I the eclipse? I so. felt Sadhguru was talking to me. You yeah. know, oh, it's the eclipse. I say, it's not the lemon water on my dinner. It's. <laughs> Oh, we got somebody, uh, I we guess, probably on there. Bobby is he calling Wilder. on the phone again? He is. He's uh, calling on the phone again. Bobby, Bobby what's happening to your high-tech connections here? Did you, you go into the Opal website and look for a new download of software? 
maybe? I did. And I left a message with the guy that wrote the software. Uh-huh. But anyway, I'm going to have to call in today. Yeah. Well, that's it's all right. Up. You're always yeah. welcome. Whatever it well, takes, you know, my you can, friend. You can use Opal with your iPhone. Yeah. I'll have to download that to the phone. I have a Samsung phone, but oh, I have I two. I, ra- I ran Opal on two iPads and then on my Mac Mini with the M1 mm-hmm. chip, and all three of them didn't work this morning. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, at least you're trying. Appreciate that. This is Bobby Wilder, our science correspondent in San Francisco, checking in on the phone line. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, we know you tried to debug Opal. Did you vote? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm going to do that after the show. Here. After yeah. the show. Okay. okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is it raining there? It was, but there's some sunshine breaking through the clouds here, and I can see a little bit of blue sky. It's oh, a, fantastic. You know, All right. Well, that's good. Yeah, but well, it had a lot of rain. We yeah, did. A lot Torrance, of rain last Torrance last night, huh? Yeah. Right. Otherwise, we would have been watching the eclipse, you know? Yeah. I'm very yeah. happy yeah. for the trees, though. You know, the the church with the sign in Boulder Creek today said, storms make trees grow deeper roots. I thought that was lovely. That's the church with the sign. (laughs) (laughs) Another famous feature of Boulder Creek, (laughs) the church with the sign. (laughs) Okay, well, let's see. Let's look first at our space news. Okie dokie. All right. Okay, there was an update on the NASA's Artemis One moon mission. That's the big NASA launch to the moon that's supposed mm-hmm. to be happening this month. Again, it's supposed to be yeah. happening this month. It's supposed to be happening this month for several months now, hasn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah, but, but it's not as bad as, like, fusion uh-huh. <laughs> becoming real. It's a little, I think it's more likely to happen I hope this so. month. I hope fusion so. Power. I'm, a, yeah. I'm a big NASA cheerleader. Right now, NASA's targeting November 14th for the launch of the Space Launch System rocket and the Orion spacecraft on Artemis 1. Mm-hmm. And it'll be uncrewed flight tests, and it will send Orion beyond the moon and then back to Earth. Mm-hmm. Yes, November 14th. Keep an eye open. Hopefully, by the time next week's show is on, we'll have some Feedback. good news on that. We'll know the about the fate of Artemis also, we have a successful trajectory correction maneuver. The Capstone spacecraft is expected to arrive in lunar orbit on November 13th. So we'll have some news next week on that, too. Oh, tell me, is, do you have a little it will test background the, the, Well, it will be testing the elliptical lunar orbit, the, the very strange elliptical orbit around the moon that the Gateway Lunar Outposts will use as part of NASA's Artemis program. Oh, so it's kind of an orbit probe. It's meant yeah, to it's, see how our polar orbit yeah, it's is going to work. Really, a really interesting elliptical orbit. I believe it goes around the poles. Mm-hmm. That will be where they will have a space station in that orbit. And they're going to see if that orbit indeed is a good one to have for uh, the moon. Hmm. That's the capstone. Isn't the capstone the top of a pyramid? Well, there's that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's that. So I guess they're thinking of the orbital center of the moon if there is such a thing as the north pole of the moon then they're there going is. to be going from a the south top too. to the bottom that's yeah. right south to north as opposed to the yeah. equator right <laughs> right and of course you know all the real interest right now is in the south pole where the water is right mm-hmm. right and the potential basis for both the chinese and the u.s uh, so be an interesting new territoriality thing we might be facing in the near future. We'll, well see. let's hope we learn to fall in love with our fellow Earth neighbors again, like in the golden age of the space race, 
right? <laughs> Let's be one humanity exploring yeah. space in collaboration. What? Beyond nationalism? Yeah, yeah, planetism. <laughs> How planetismal. Yeah. <laughs> okay, NASA's lunar flashlight is also in the news this week. You heard of the flashlight, the lunar flashlight? It sounds intriguing. It's, I can't say I'm familiar well, with it. Well, it's a small satellite that will use lasers to search for water ice inside the darkest craters on the moon's south pole. <laughs> I love it. So it's a little tiny. Is it like a CubeSat? Is it a little tiny a lunar, satellite? Uh, I believe it is. I believe uh -huh. it's a CubeSat. Uh -huh. Water ice could provide a valuable resource for anybody there for numerous reasons, as we've discussed many times. Water is key to industrial applications for food, for fuel. Lunar Flashlight is targeted for launch this November. All right. That was a little quick briefing on the moon, the moon shots that are coming up. Yes. And now we're going to brief you on some of the local businesses that would love to serve you. Here. Yes. And after that, we'll talk about how some people are trying to turn space into a billboard. <laughs> we'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to the show. Yes, yeah, so I want to mention that there was a Canadian startup called Geometric Energy Corporation. Geometric Energy Corporation have linked up with Musk SpaceX to take advertising to space on a small satellite aboard a Falcon 9. And the idea is not a classic advertising billboard in space. Not that there is such a thing as a classic billboard in space to begin with, but they're using a pixelated display with a web camera aimed at the display to show a pixelated ad in space. So it's kind of more of a novelty yeah. thing here. It's like, here, this billboard is coming to you streaming live from space. Right. <laughs> and it is a little digital pixel screen in space, but you have a camera aimed at it. That's how we see it. It's too small to actually be able to be seen from the ground. Yeah. Now, but a real advertising in space where you be able to put up like a, I don't know, a thousand drones that are very bright and be able to create a picture that you could see from 150 miles up, mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, that would be... I want to check this out. I want to see what the billboard from space is showing. And yeah. uh, I thought it was pretty interesting that the way that they're selling this is using a cryptocurrency, right? It's a Dogecoin. Yes. So this company is selling not just billboard space, they're selling it by the pixel and there are five tokens per pixel that you can purchase <laughs> for your billboard. And those five tokens give you your XY coordinates on the billboard. It gives you your gamma settings. So that helps you choose your color, your brightness settings, etc. You can choose your time of when this displayed pixel is supposed to show up. Yes. Uh, and, uh, uh, beta, for, beta for the X coordinate, rho for the Y coordinate, gamma for the brightness, kappa for the color, and XI, X1 yeah. for time. Yeah. And so this is a new model for advertising. This is a blockchain pixel-based <laughs> pricing model <laughs> that you can pay with a token-based currency. 
<laughs> so I thought that all is wow. We're going to have to keep an eye on that one. And Could that be the shape of things to come? And as I mentioned earlier, since the pixels are too small to be seen from space, a selfie stick on the CubeSat will capture the image and live stream it to YouTube or Twitch. Yeah, but we don't have the URL yet, right? This no. is still no, kind we'll of conceptual. To get that. Probably by next week we'll have it. No, well, actually, this might be up. Uh -huh. actually, yeah, I, so we have to that. track this one down and uh -huh. see if we can actually see the billboard, see who's advertising, etc. And they were using crypto to buy the tokens. Right. Ethereum, Dogecoin. Yeah, if you were wondering what you can buy with Dogecoin, this yeah. is one thing you can buy as a pixel on yeah. the CubeSat here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, vote for flavored tobacco <laughs> from space. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, because smoking in space is so popular. Because the tobacco companies could afford it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, there was a very scary sound that we could hear from space that is of the Earth's magnetic field. Ooh. Okay, now let me tell a little bit of introduction We're to this before you to say it, before you play it. Borealis? The magnetic field of the planet isn't something we can actually hear, but scientists at the Technical University of Denmark have taken magnetic signals measured by the European Space Agency's Swarm Satellite Mission and converted them into sound. Hmm. And for something for that protects us, it sounds a little weird. It's very so. interesting because we're measuring a magnetic field that yes. surrounds our planet and we're measuring its interactions with the particles coming from the sun, right? The solar wind. Which hit it and yeah. create the sound. I had the visualization Thanks. of an old-fashioned vinyl needle, uh -huh. you know, that's like playing the magnetic field on an old record. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Can't <laughs> say I've seen that as an old, but that's interesting. Uh-huh. But here, what we're measuring is the magnetic field of our magnetosphere. Yeah, a radiation-charged particle field, powerful winds blowing. Think of winds blowing. Yeah, and think of what it looks like. With the aurora borealis, the green and sometimes red lights that you see in the sky when it's really lit up. Up in the northern climes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now we're talking about translating that into sound. Mainly oxygen and nitrogen collisions in the upper atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And they're transformed into um, that green-blue light that you see. Well, the aurora borealis, charged particles converted to sound will sound a little bit more like... Okay, there we go. Okay, that's... It that's doesn't really... It sort of sounds like an avalanche or something. The magnetic field yeah. of the planet. Look. Here it comes! Out of the way! <laughs> Ooh, I like that part. <laughs> well, let's see if I can play that again. Here. Like there, right? Yeah, that's very interesting. I like it. Okay, that's an interaction with a solar storm. That's the magnetic field of the planet interacting with a solar storm. This was a particularly active moment in our in our magnetosphere. And this exhibit was created and was put on public display in Copenhagen. 
yes, during uh, October. 30 loudspeakers in Copenhagen from October 24th to the 30th. Just in time for Halloween. <laughs> Our planet dressed up as a new sound. <laughs> yes. Bringing the magnetic rumble of the planet to the masses. Wow, cool. All right. Okay. All right. That's, well, that was fun. Yeah. All right. Wow. Listening to the Aurora Borealis of As a particular solar storm. The force that protects our planet. Right. Yeah. It's kind of scary for something that protects us. It didn't sound that scary. It sounded just kind of, it sounded like a natural sound of rocks falling or something didn't like sound that. like skeleton shaking yeah. chains or anything to you? <laughs> yes. Sounded no? like wind blowing <laughs> rocks around to me. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How about you, Bobby? What do you think? It sounded like a tornado was coming or something, or, or okay. an avalanche, or you're riding a, a roller coaster and it's going up the roller coaster. And... Yeah, Before you, you go down. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's true. It does sound kind of like that. That is interesting. <laughs> we got a caller, Mrs. Future? We got Firefall on the line. All right. You bring ready? him on for the. Hey, Hey, Firefall. Hello. Hey, Firefall. What you got for us today? Uh, Hello. Hello. Yeah, I always was contemplating about combining light with sound since it all has to do with particles. I wanted to bring up Google had uh, manufactured a seagoing vessel about seven stories high at the former Navy base and shipyard called uh, Treasure Island Midway on the Oakland-San Francisco Bay Bridge. Uh And that vessel that was constructed last I heard was about maybe nine, 2000 and maybe 13. Was it in fact intended to be able to be a seagoing vessel that could pick up Google? If you have Google, you can get it in the middle of the ocean. And I think, but you'd have to have Google. Is that what they were, they were constructing it for so that you could pick up Google anywhere on the ocean? All right, Dr. Future could, is looking into that for you, but I want to just give you a little tidbit out of my memory. About that time, you know, Dr. Future and I were doing shows, and there was a whole thing about Google having an offshore, like 12 miles offshore office complex so that they could have a certain cadre of programmers that were international that could come here and program but didn't have to be citizens and didn't have to be... Uh, is that you? Who's who's making all that noise? Is that you, Firefox? No, no, no. This is quiet where I am. This, uh, well, I wanted to. I wanted to mention that this was constructed at the Treasure Island former Navy base. Oh, okay. So that's not the thing I was. What did you find anything? Well, they did have some barges. Google had some barges that were floating barges between 2010 and 2012, and they were meant to be an interactive space where people can interact with the technology, the new technology at the time. They were possibly going to be luxury showrooms for Google Glass which had just been coming out. Hmm. But they halted work on that in 2013 and sold off the barges in 2014. Hmm. Um, So that's the only thing I know about. I haven't heard about any Google boat out there. I know they were doing Project Loon, which was involving... uh, It was was a structure. It was a sea-worthy structure. It was pretty high. I just know they built it there, and I don't know really what's going on with it now. And I thought maybe somebody could call your show. Yeah, maybe somebody knows. Because I know about the barges. I know about Project Loon, which is high-altitude balloons, which make more sense for receiving Wi-Fi. Thank you, everybody. All righty. Yeah. Thanks for calling, Firefall. Yeah. Always good to hear from you. Bye. 
Yeah. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. So if anyone knows about the Google ship, let us know. I'll continue to research during the break, see if we can find anything on that. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back. Yeah, the only thing I could found regarding any Google boat was the Google barge story, which existed back in 2013, 2014 time period. And, and they were to function as floating showrooms for Google Glass. And there was talk about Google Glass really taking off back then. That was before it became the boondoggle that it was at the time, <laughs> sadly. Yeah. Well, it was pioneer research. Yeah. And it, that's what you got to love about startup culture. Young companies are not afraid to just try new things. Good on them. I'm so glad they did. Yeah. And there'll be new versions. As a matter of fact, the, the whole idea of augmented reality is finally going to start taking form, most likely next year and the year after that. Mm -hmm. um, it turned out to be way more complicated to do uh, properly than people thought 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And now, finally, the technology is reaching a point where we can superimpose digital realities onto actual physical realities to create a seamless intertwining of the two. Hmm. where the inner worlds of digital meet with the outer worlds of our senses. Yeah. A few years ago, we were interacting with a very interesting company called, it was Pachama. Pachama. Pachamama? No, it wasn't Pachamama. That's the environmental group. This is called Pachama. And this company was aiming to be the Google for carbon credits, and they were hiring people in AI to map rainforests and then to use that to calculate carbon for a digital exchange. They carbon were, credits? Yeah, carbon credits. They were digitally mapping actual trees and calculating how much carbon those trees were creating and then were using that to create a market for carbon credits. Pachama. And the reason it came to mind as you were describing this imposing the digital map onto the real world is because yeah. the vision of the fellow that we knew that was talking about There's it... There's the Argentinian uh, company, right? No, he's... No? That was a different company. But the one that I'm talking about, he had this vision while he was deep meditation and felt that he saw all of these trees light up as digital trees and his whole vision for doing this was very much this one of the digital world illuminated by the real world ah, so is so. that another form of augmented reality yeah in a sense where yeah and that's uh, kind of the the future of humans assisting the planet is to come up with models where we can actually help understand what's going on in the planet by you know, By using the digital to measuring it, yeah. focus our attention on certain aspects of the real world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Improving our aim to be helpful instead of harmful. You also remind me that right now COP27 is going on. Mm-hmm. Right. Some of you may have heard of that. It's kind of been overshadowed by a lot of other news lately. But well, that's kind of the modern version of what was originally the Paris Accord. Right? It was the international treaty to help countries come together to avert climate crisis. And looking at climate issues and there's international climate negotiations going on there. There was one in Rio before that too, right? So it has a long history. 27 years. Mm -hmm. 
of history. So, yeah, it's got a bit of years. Mm -hmm. Reducing greenhouse gas emissions, a plan for new global weather, early warning system, I think is one of their big conversations that are going on right now. The United Nations is very involved with this. Mm -hmm. They've kind of been organizing annual climate negotiations for many, many years now. Mm -hmm. And for this event, which is taking place in a, a place called Sharm el Sheikh. Which we've been to. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful yeah. resort on the Red Sea in Egypt. Mm -hmm. Amazing place. We and had very super energy conscious. When we were there, you would check into your room and your key would unlock the motion detector lighting system. And while you were in the room, the electricity would work. But when you left everything would shut down again to preserve power. That kind of thinking, that kind of design. And the service. I mean, I was just amazed. We were with our friend Michael Gosney and our team, who was a DJ, and they helped us set up his DJ station on a tent right down by the Red Sea. Mm -hmm. And the golf carts, they brought all the gear. And, oh, and, yeah. And the, the whole nine yards for Egyptians, creating this they amazing... they loved to party. They, yeah. they were really looking forward to our little dance party, which we had a lot of fun. No, I must say, <laughs> Egyptians were very laid back. They were, it kind of reminded me of Californians uh -huh. in many ways. Uh, and the uh, Israelis that we met were more like New Yorkers. Right. You know, a little different <laughs> mentality, but still fun. Yeah. We had a great time. I just I love Sharm el Sheikh. That's where the conference is going on right now. Yeah. There. And it's also a place you would go if you ever wanted to get biblical and go to Mount Sinai. Oh, yeah. Sort of it's a yeah, good takeoff place uh, right. for a day trip. It is. <laughs> it's a day uh, trip to a biblical hot yeah. spot. <laughs> so this has gone on for two weeks now to discuss how we can cut greenhouse gas emissions and pay for the costs of climate change. We have a link on our page that looks at what has gone on today and yesterday. There's a lot of interesting stories there, like, for example, the U.N. Secretary General warned us all that we're on a highway to climate hell. Can we cut all the conversations about how we are shooting ourselves in the foot and how we have to feel so much angst? And can we just cut to how do we have the smartest, most loving solution to make things as good as they can well, be? Well, they are talking about a new early warning system for weather disasters, for example, how to make things better so that we can avoid extreme storms and flood damage mm -hmm. by knowing when it's going to happen. For example, like our earthquake two weeks ago now, yeah. many of us got early warning. If you had an Android, you got an early warning. I have an iPhone, so I got a late warning. You got warning. a late warning. <laughs> 30 <laughs> right. seconds after it happened. There was an earthquake uh, yeah. coming up a few minutes ago, but we're late in telling you, so it was yeah. actually a minute ago. You got to you know, <laughs> give them credit for trying at least. Yeah, right. <laughs> so they're looking at an early warning system and how to forecast better. Mm -hmm. And forecasting is getting better, you know, with the new satellites and CubeSats even are participating in this. Yeah. But the coverage is not as good in developing countries, which have been hit hardest by global warming. So they're looking at this current plan, spending about $3 billion to set up this early warning system over the next five years in places that don't already have an early warning system. And what is it going to warn us of? Early warning for extreme storms, earthquakes, and floods. Mm hmm. Okay. So and maybe people can 
I'm reminded of this TV show we recently watched about, was it Five Days in Louisiana? Five Days at Memorial? Was that what it was called? Yeah, it was on an Apple show on the... And it was all about the horrible mismanagement of the resources around the hospital emergency in the... the hospital in the middle of the flood in New Orleans. For, in for Katrina. Hurricane Katrina. Right. Right. And the thing that it really made apparent, though, is that organizations have emergency plans, especially organizations that are serving large groups of people. Yeah. And these emergency plans are largely inadequate because as soon as the resources beyond, say, the hospital in this case, are reached, the rest of the infrastructure is not really in place to help them. And so we need to have a view where we see ourselves connected to a larger whole on the planet and so that every emergency isn't just you're on your own but you have resources that can be called in from the larger network yeah yeah I mean, that's what they're, they're trying to figure out how to create these emergency action systems yeah yeah so it starts with the warning we need facts mm -hmm. about the warning but then once we have the warning what do we do about it so i hope we're moving to that stage is like what do we do about it well the technology can work on a global scale much better than people can <laughs> it would appear we're so yeah. nationalistic. The technology yeah. doesn't have so many egos to navigate and so many mouths to feed. <laughs> yeah. Of course, the world leaders are complaining that the rich countries aren't paying their fair share, but who else is paying for it? Well, so that's they, what you know. people do. People complain because they want something. And yeah. I get so tired of listening to that whole Developing vibe. countries want compensation for damages. There's a lot of politics what is politics. it Kennedy said? Ask not what you can, not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Yeah. I think we should ask that for our planet. Yeah, Ask well, not what your planet can do for you, but what you can do for your planet. Everyone wants a handout. Not everyone. Some people are here to enjoy making the effort to live this beautiful life that we've been given and to contribute something of value. In fact, I think a lot of people are motivated by that. Not everybody here is feeling disgruntled and waiting for somebody to give them something because they can't get it themselves. I'd say there's a much more resilient population that is just silently always pushing ahead. Okay, well, I'm really happy that you have that attitude because the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Amor Motley, she, in her speech, she called for corporations that profit from fossil fuel in the economy, gas and oil companies, to pay for the costs associated with sea level rise and the hurricanes that are happening in the Caribbean and the heat waves and the droughts around the world are the countries that are in the path of these storms uh, don't have the money to protect themselves and a lot of this is caused by the fossil fuel industry burning as well, much see, as they this, do. This whole so, narrative of establish blame and then get someone to pay you. Well, that's worked for a long time. I think, though, you know? that it actually is so bogged down that it's not really the best way to get to where we need to get to. You mean get beyond blame as a model for uh, solving world problems? Yeah, don't make blame the basis for solving the problems. Make uh -huh. vision the basis for solving problems. You know, get, get back to this identity that the humans on this planet are here for the help to help so, okay, solve vision. the problem. Well, who's going to pay for the vision? The oil companies? Well, the people? Taxes? In the words of some great teachers, the money will come from wherever it is now. But <laughs> the bottom line is we need to have yeah. a certain human consciousness, uh -huh. which is that we can solve these problems and that as we illuminate the 
awareness and, and understand what's wrong, we can begin to articulate the solutions. And then once that happens, we can move towards fixing it. But this whole layer of like figuring out who to blame is just a leak in the energy because then you put all this energy into pointing the finger and but proving minute, right and wrong. And but isn't so much based on that? I mean, don't the insurance companies work by that way as well? Remember there used to be no-fault insurance at one time? Mm-hmm. Whatever happened to that? Good question. Well, let's find out after the break. All right. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to the show. Well, we're on the whole climate topic. Uh, I thought this is an interesting piece in New Atlas about how Europe is found to be warming twice as fast as the rest of the planet. That scientists tracking climate change have found Europe is seeing temperatures at more than twice the global average, which is kind of interesting. This rate of warming is the highest of any continent on the planet, and the research shows that heat waves, wildfires, and other extreme events are much more prevalent there. I thought it was funny when you earlier, when we were discussing this over at Starbucks, you were thinking that the cold that they're having by not getting the Russian gas, <laughs> we compensated by this rate of warming that they're experiencing. If they could somehow uh, capture the heat and hold uh, on to it and then not need it in the yeah. winter. Oh, yeah. Just I know it was brilliant being ridiculous, idea, but really uh, like that. it seems like if the big concern is global warming, uh-huh. somehow that should help them in this big concern about winter freezing. <laughs> okay, well, pragmatically, the temperatures in Europe rose from 1991 to 2021 at an average of about 0.9 degrees Fahrenheit per decade. Which is very high compared to what they've estimated yeah. per uh, century in the, the past. The global increase averages 0.36 per decade. Mm. You know, so, <laughs> so Europe's more than double that. Mm-hmm. And that extreme weather and climate events impact the whole continent, and economic costs are over $50 billion as a result of that. So it's a live picture of warming world, and it reminds us that even well-prepared societies are not really ready for dealing with extreme weather events. Well, this conversation, leaders who are trying to have a conversation about how to spend billions of dollars to protect us against 0.3% rise in temperature is not the conversation an average person can participate in. There's nothing... What can you do about it? Yeah, what can you do about it? Mm. And the scale of all these things, how do we know that this tiny shift in temperature is going to result in these terrible predictions of loss and, you know, the leap from... It's complicated. It's really complicated. It's very complicated. Uh, And Europe had managed to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by 31% from 1990 to 2020. And still, this is happening. Yeah. So what does that tell you? It tells you that this article doesn't think that there's any, there's nothing on the end of this story that gives you hope. That's what I don't like about this story. Mm. I feel like they cherry pick the facts that just make it sound like there's nothing but doom ahead. 
Well, there's a red warning. I think that's what they're saying. It's still two seconds to midnight. <laughs> you know, and the doomsday clock. Well, I think we're at Delete. midnight, and we're. You think we're at midnight? Oh, we're in we're trouble now. We're humans who are communicating as best we can about uh, many facts that are beyond our scope, and we have to maintain our ability to hold it together. <laughs> well, what about some good news? Like, hey, will Antarctica become habitable? Yeah, there's a conversation. So if Europe's heating twice as fast as the rest of the world, does that mean people there should move to Antarctica? Well, it's still a kind of a freezing and hospitable space. And average temperature right now in Antarctica is minus 56 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> well, sounds, uh, like, sounds like their heating oil problem is going to prepare them for that. Yeah, normal 200-mile-an-hour <laughs> winds, you know. It sounds about as friendly as Mars. That's what I was going to say, honey. Yeah. You want to go practice for Mars, right? It's not very populated. A lot of room there. There's only a handful of scientists doing research there, and there's no permanent residence. You can see and why. a whole continent. You can see uh, why. Yeah. But considering, <laughs> considering all the great technological advances and, and the changing climate, maybe one day Antarctica will support permanent human settlements. You thought I was an optimist. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're more of an optimist. <laughs> you know, it's there. It's a lot of land. It's got air. You know, Mars doesn't have air. Well, I think there's a lot of other places on the planet that are going to continue to be wonderful places to be. <laughs> Without having to go to Antarctica. Well, if yeah. the global warming continues, then this becomes an option, possibly. Yeah. Okay. It is kind of remote. I'll give you that. But given how we have global internet now, mm -hmm. you could be anywhere and work. It's not too different. Some places in the Arctic, like in Greenland or Iceland, or even places in Norway and Russia and Canada, or Alaska. Alaska has really cold areas, too, that, that has permanent residence. Mm -hmm. So if the issue, only issue were weather, then we might stand a chance to spend more time there. Well, weather is very much affected by clothing, right? If you have the well, right clothes, you can live anywhere. <laughs> the key is importing food and goods. Well, if you can and import food, food and goods. goods, then you're there. And hmm. The research stations right now down there, they have a lot of renewable energy because it's expensive to ship in diesel and gas. And I wonder how many good weather days a year they have. <laughs> because maybe, <laughs> you know, if you can just ship yourself six months of packet food, yeah, I'm sure that's what they do in the research stations that they have down there. Right? Yeah, well, they could grow their own. They got a lot of water. That's mm -hmm. what we're looking for on the moon. There's a lot more water down in Antarctica than there is on the moon. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the power grid would have to be that big. You know, you have basically have decentralized power with solar and wind, and the battery technologies are getting better. And better. I've got some great battery stories th this mm -hmm. week, great battery stories. Now, here you're living in beautiful California, and you're responsible yeah. for all of our technology living off the grid with our solar power. Yeah. Now, yeah. would you want to have to do that in Antarctica? Half isn't the right word. Uh, <laughs> I know. I prefer to live in the Bay Area. Personally, uh -huh. I like. I feel like Boulder Creek is the American Riviera uh -huh. in terms of weather. Weather, right, right. So I feel very blessed in that respect. Well, that's Based what I was saying. I mean, even like it was pouring rain last night, and yeah. you know that's nice weather compared to what you're going to find down in I know. Antarctica. I know. I'm not. I'm not dying to go to Antarctica. <laughs> believe me. However, based on the fossil record. They used to have a climate down there that was perfectly suitable for forests oh. and dinosaurs. Oh, that yeah. would have been... The 100 million years ago. Antarctica was well-developed vegetation, substantial forests, all kinds of organisms, conifers, ferns, flowering plants, 
angiosperms. It was all there. We have charcoal remnants found on James Ross Island. Mm, we probably have fossilized ancestors, that, too. That wildfires had burned huge forests down there <laughs> during the Cretaceous. Okay, so things change. Yeah, they change. <laughs> <laughs> they change. And we're a very adaptable species, Mrs. Reacher. We can live anywhere. We're here we, to we're, prove. We're here to tell I mean, the tale. Naturally, you want to live where it's nicest for us, and that's where it's warm. Mm -hmm. I really like Maui, I must admit. Now. You like it now, like it but now, during yeah. the Cretaceous, what was happening there? It probably wasn't even, probably didn't even underwater. exist yet, yeah, it right? Probably, <laughs> it was an underwater probably, volcano. <laughs> it had probably hadn't erupted. The volcano probably hadn't even erupted yet <laughs> to create the island. So we're a very adaptable species, and if we have to live in Antarctica, we will. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. We're very adaptable. And we are the survivors of everything that happened before. So yeah. obviously we figured out in time how to avert whatever crises nature threw at us and still be here to tell the tale. Yes, yes. And since, <laughs> and since Earth is mostly nicer than Antarctica, this harsh, inhospitable continent we call Antarctica, we're unlikely to have any Antarcticans anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> So I think that's the <laughs> unless, conclusion. Of, unless somehow the entire planet shifts and yeah, then we'd it's all too hot at the equator and it's uh, then we don't have any left, any place left that's freezing. That's it. The sun goes supernova. We're all Antarcticans. Well, we better be off the planet by yeah, then. Yeah, we better be. <laughs> uh, Bobby, would you want to live there? I'd like to visit. <laughs> yeah. visit yes, <laughs> I'm with you. Let's I, visit these I, extreme places. Yeah, I'd, I'd bring a a warm jacket, at least. At least. <laughs> at least. Some warm clothes. You've got to keep yeah. your extremities from freezing. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't venture outside the hut very often. Yeah. <laughs> ah, well, therein lies oh. the future. Oh, well, You've got VR. And as long remember, as your internet works. Yeah. Remember, there are, there are mysteries yeah. down there. Remember Brad Olson, who's we've had on the show before, was investigating, went down there to check out that the Admiral Byrd supposedly had discovered a, a, a tropical environment in Antarctica. But uh, oh, that hasn't and been UFOs substantiated. Yeah, UFOs and, and a Nazi base and all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to check the Y files on YouTube. It's one of my favorite <laughs> there you sources yeah. for information yeah. on that. Yeah, that's where you get the Yeah, that's it, the Y files and the, <laughs> the, uh, the goldfish. All right, well, our number one is coming to a close here on the Dr. and Mrs. Future show with our buddy Bobby Wilder. Yes, we've got lots more stories to share with you beyond Antarctica. That means it's time for the second hour of the Dr. and Mrs. Future program. And now, your host, Dr. Future. Hey, folks, welcome back to the show. Hey, we got Bobby now on Opal, so it's, it's going to sound like he's in the studio yeah. with us. Hey, Bobby, you there? Yeah, so um, it sounds better. Uh, oh, definitely that's good. Opal's better than, than calling in. That's sure. good. Yeah, that's yeah. your Samsung phone now that you're working on, right? Yeah, so I just loaded up the app, and it seemed to work. Yeah. Good, good, because I have some questions for you. Just before the yeah. show began today, right, yeah. you're a big fan of videos on YouTube especially, and you sent me in, and yeah. I can't watch videos at the last minute before I'm on the air, but you sent one that says, shocking leaked document causes world leaders to panic. And, you know, I haven't been able to read that. So, Bobby, could you give me the cliff note version of why do you send that at the last minute? Is it really shocking leaked document that is causing panic on the it, world leaders or what? Well, I think it will maybe What's the tomorrow. Story? What's the story? The main story is the Attorney General of Missouri and the Attorney General of Louisiana yeah. is filing a, a lawsuit 
against the Biden administration for allegedly colluding with social media to censor and suppress free speech. That's in a nutshell what they're trying to do. And social media uh, anyway, suppressing sitting, free speech. You mean like Twitter? Well, they're going uh, after the Biden more, administration more for censorship, Facebook. basically. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Remember uh, Joe Rogan interviewed right. Mark Zuckerberg, and Zuckerberg says that he was approached to actually suppress certain kinds of media okay. on yeah. his platform. Uh -huh. And so they're pointing to those kind of documents is what they're saying. So anyway, it'll be very interesting. I just heard about this and that's why I sent it to you at the last minute. I'm sorry. There's going to be so many lawsuits in this next period ahead. We also have a number of lawsuits where in New York, the mayor has been found guilty of Let's see, something COVID firings have been found to be unconstitutional overreach of government power and a lot of New York employees that refuse to get vaccinated are going to be reinstated with back pay and these yeah, laws uh, yeah, that the overreach of government has... It's basically these lawsuits are showing that the lawmakers just assumed certain powers during the COVID crisis and then they weren't planning to give them back and that it takes lawsuits to get them to acknowledge that these are not their constitutional powers and they are not the powers that they are allowed to exercise as elected officials. So there's going to be a lot of lawsuits like that happen. That one in particular in New York is just one of the landmark ones. I know they're happening all over the country. So. Yeah, there was something similar in Chicago, too, where I think teachers were let go because they weren't, because they refused to be vaccinated. And now there's lawsuits that they can get compensated for losing their job. Mm -hmm. So that's what's happening in New York, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we just see the beginning of this, this whole yeah. yeah. Issue. Hmm. Well, on a related note, it's been very interesting watching how Musk is reshaping Twitter mm -hmm. <laughs> this last week. And, and keep in mind, this is just the very beginning. A lot more is going to be changing with Twitter as things go on. Because I do think that Musk is listening to people's feedback. Mm -hmm. Maybe not as much as he should. But he is beginning to well, reinstate to the degree certain that people. He can. I mean, yeah. his Twitter just has to be some small sliver of his responsibilities. I saw him recently on a talk show where he said that he's primarily an engineer. Ninety percent of the things that he actually pays attention to are engineering type problems. And so, you know, he did start out as a software programmer in his youthful days before he was a big, famous businessman. Right. And he probably has some pretty interesting insights for how to make Twitter work better that he's communicating to people. The one that I think caught people's attention was all of these celebrities who were impersonating Elon Musk and then broadcasting political advice as him and then yeah. changing their identity back to their verified identity and then getting kicked off. For you know, doing that, that happened. Yeah. Yeah, he basically responded to people who falsified their identity by kicking them off, and he's reinstating them kind of on a petition basis. <laughs> <laughs> so I think he's serious about Twitter getting rid of people who are not taking responsibility for their free speech. <laughs> well, there's a very interesting article in science.org about how scientists are 
thinking about changing their platform from Twitter to something called Mastodon. Mm-hmm. That's been around for a long time. Yes, but it is gaining quite a following as of late, mm-hmm. even though it has been around for a while. And, and a lot of these scientists don't have that many followers. I mean, uh, the one that they're talking about has 16,000 followers. He's no Twitter celebrity, but he's one of countless scientists who use the platform to connect with and debate colleagues in their field. Mm-hmm. This is fields, not just of science, but of also artists and journalists, the general public. There's all kinds of special interest groups. There's lots of LGBTQ+, plus, black, uh, Well, the new town hall. There's all kinds of specialty groups. It's the online meetup. Right, and most of which we know nothing about. Mm-hmm. And some of which we would not uh, have heard of if it hadn't been for Twitter. Well, it's because you only have time for your own destiny. Right. right, right. <laughs> you can't possibly follow everybody's conversation everywhere all the time. Yes. <laughs> so one of the issues, uh, scientists are getting abuse, uh, hate speech towards some of them. They are not used to that. And they're wondering if it's worth it to stay on a platform where you have to deal with hate speech. Well, there's nothing the platform can do about users who choose to engage it that way. Not nothing, but it is a behavioral, it's at the level of the individual, not at the level of the platform. It's a false equivalency to hold the platform responsible, unless you are a big advocate of censorship. And I think you have to have that conversation. What's the best way to not censor people who want to lower the quality of the conversation well okay well what about the censorship whether where it's contentious like like the whole issue around the pandemic i mean there were a lot of censorship issues on social media around the vaccinations for example well that's going to be a whole bunch of more lawsuits i've been tracking some of the lawsuits against this gavin newsom shut up the doctor's bill where if a doctor doesn't go along with his bureaucratically recommended treatment advice and gives his patients some other opinion then he loses his license these are lawsuits these are free speech lawsuits you're not allowed to have bureaucrats assume that power from doctors And the fact that they chose to do it because there was this emergency crisis in place doesn't make it any more acceptable. Even now, after all this. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. One of the greatest fears is that Musk will cause Twitter to deteriorate. All right, let's talk about it after the break, okay? Okay. All right, be right back. I'm glad to be here, even though the greatest fear is that under Musk, discourse on Twitter will deteriorate further. Well, some well, fear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's hope. <laughs> I find what's interesting is today, Prigozhin admits that he's interfering with U.S. elections. Who does uh, that? Prigozhin. No, oh. but he's the uh, the catering guy that uh, is now head of the uh, Wagner Group, Armini. Yeah, the food chef guy. The that, food chef is in charge of uh, propaganda. He's running for the Wagner uh, RT um, propaganda. Uh, paramilitary group. Oh uh, uh, yeah. Right now, but anyway, he's trying to replace uh, Putin if something happens to Putin as an alternative. He's a hard right winger, but anyway, he's admitting that Russia did interfere with elections, both now and in the past. Yeah. And it was probably through Twitter. 
And so yeah. that's what I suspect. Yeah, Twitter's an easy one. Of course, Facebook has been responsible for some of this as well. Well, and they're not the only ones. I mean, yeah. it's the nature of propagandists to try and make their enemy targets look bad. Yeah. Well, I think everyone's trying to influence the... I mean, I think if foreign governments feel like they have a right to influence American elections because America affects them. Sure. So anybody that affects you should have a say in. I think yeah. is the logic right. there. Yeah, it's I, reciprocal. I, I think <laughs> yeah, they should they should vote in yeah. American elections. Yeah, there's <laughs> should, people who believe that vote. America has so much influence <laughs> in the world that everybody in the world should get to vote in our elections, right. not just locals. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, with the use of uh, these Russian bots that are both on Facebook and Twitter, yeah, they can, they are voting in our country. You know, with that. The yes. bot vote. Really? How are bots yeah, voting? Or influ well, they're the influencers, influencers, right? They're social influencers. Oh, I see what you yeah. mean. That kind of voting. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. Because the bots can represent, make it appear like thousands of people are thinking well, this yeah. way. Yeah. And I, when, and when, when it, I, what's your opinion as to how much of an influence they have? Are they, do they have as much an influence on us as, say, Roger Ailes and Fox News, for example? Is the, do it as... Do you think the mainstream media it, still has more of an influence on us? Well, some people are glued to Facebook or Twitter more than they are to the news. Some are, and, right. Uh, but how, or, you know, what's the yeah, percentage of the population that's doing that versus watching TV, CNN, MSNBC, all of which are trying to influence us towards their sensibilities? What I see is a lot yeah, that, of people who really yeah. only listen to their own beliefs anyway. Really? So I everyone's have, in their own echo chamber? Yeah, I get the sense that things don't stick to you unless it's what you want to hear. And that a lot of people, that's how they listen to the media. So it doesn't matter how many messages are coming at them, they're inherently screening for the ones that fit their worldview. Hmm. Though I thought the panel discussions were supposed to be ways in which you have multiple points of views portrayed in one conversation. When you say the panel discussion. Like, like you see on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or Newsmax. or I mean, They're all trying to have other points of views besides one. Right, then why have a panel discussion if, you're, if it's all going to be... Even um, Bamar mm -hmm. has uh, panel discussions as a part of his conversation. Mm -hmm. Isn't that trying to get the idea of multiple points of view across to the audience? I think that we have a rich tradition of doing our news that way, and it got compromised during these last few years as social media entered the scene and as political people political influencers really had big budgets to affect outcomes and I think they created the distortions that we're dealing with but I do feel the trends are moving back towards balanced conversations among people of goodwill mm -hmm. with a desire to have an intelligent perspective not just to wallpaper your own point of view and bury your opponent. That you're open to new ideas, you're open to new ways of thinking about something that it's a return to our nature as a country. The crisis is over, so now we're re-establishing our policies and our values. Hmm. Like there's some new information that's coming that might change your opinion about something. Yeah, and that's valuable as opposed to something to put stuffing in your ears and run away saying, kill the messenger. Yeah. Well, many are worried that the idea of free speech will go too far. 
especially with Who's with, worried with about Twitter. free speech going too yeah. far? <laughs> well, uh, there's a professor, Peterson, um, at Emory University, who says, quote, while I agree with the importance of free speech on social media, I also worry whether some of Musk's rhetoric on the issue is taken by some users as a relaxation of the norms governing Twitter interactions. We know from research and the norms governing a social media group do have an effect on the level of hostility in the group. Well, let's just say it's not the only thing having that effect. And if the community stops rewarding the most malicious tweets, then the level of conversation will go back to something that is actually informative as opposed to... As to derogatory. Yeah, entertainment through derision. Yeah, another uh, social scientist says, if it becomes too toxic and abusive, I will leave to preserve my well-being and consider other platforms, which Mm. is, I think, a very... Well, everybody does that. How many people are only on Twitter? Hardly anybody. Hardly anybody. It's just one of the many places where you get alerts that people you're interested in are broadcasting something. Mm -hmm. I guess the question is, how do you control toxicity? Well, control automatically means it's outside of the individual. And I would argue that control is not the right approach to social media or conversation. What is the right approach is questions that elicit the kinds of thinking that you want to be going on. You want to reward the behavior you want more of. Mm. In, the, in the case of the climate we've been in, the advertisers are rewarding people just because they're glued to the conversation. So it's an eyeball-based reward without any assessment of the value of the content. But we don't need to stay stuck in that low level of rewarding. We can actually go back to where we reward people who actually make a positive contribution to the subject. We're smart enough to figure out what that looks like. We might not know now, but if we want to, we can. Mm. Well, in the case of academics and scientists, a lot of them are moving away from Twitter towards uh, Mastodon, as I mentioned earlier. But the big question is whether or not the general public will move there too, or will the scientists just be communicating with each other on Mastodon? Well. Affinity groups need to mostly be communicating with each other. They do, but they also need to have that larger community that they're part of as well as in in their... It's not mutually exclusive. It is if they're on separate platforms. They might not be as No, that assumes that there's some kind of wall between platforms. Well... There is kind of. There's a, there's a psychological wall about you opening up another app. How moving. many platforms are you participating on? Not that, I mean, I don't, I don't do a lot of them right now. Mm-hmm. I don't. Two or three. I really... Um, well, that's probably true of most people. So the and, Venn and if, diagram and is probably of, pretty complicated. And if half my friends on, like, Facebook move to Mastodon... Mm-hmm. Um, if How it's would people you know? I, If uh, people Haven't I really care already? about, I will go there. Yeah, See, and I, I might find spend less time it's very on hard to figure out exactly where to look for people because some people are on Facebook and Messenger and some people are on Twitter and some people are on Instagram and some people have their own channel. Some people are on BitChute. Some people are on some other individual social yeah, media. and some of our favorite YouTubers have abandoned YouTube largely uh-huh. because they've been censored there. Yeah, right. There you go. So YouTube cut off a lot of its uh, audience just by trying to 
be the heavy hand of censorship. Yeah, and they got their power by being so popular that they can make or break someone's... But see, this is different than in the past where if you... Like what they're trying to do with the doctors that I don't think is going to survive the lawsuits, but trying to control from the top the conversation that the individuals are having is doomed to failure in this country because that's not how our strength works. People just go somewhere else. People just go around it. If it's an obstacle, they go around it. They're not interested in slowing down for whoever is the wet rag. Kind of like the way the internet was designed itself to go around outages. That's right. Towards efficiency and towards communicating with the people that you have the most in common with. It's never been easier to block people who bug you. If you don't want to engage in hate speech conversations, then you can flag those people. And that's how social media gets smarter, is people focus on who they want to participate with and they go away from people who <laughs> they don't like. Right, right. <laughs> I don't right. like the way So you're not worried works. then? You think, you think this is a healthy debate that we're looking at? It's a at. healthy debate and it's a growing pain of this technology mitigated social communication sphere. Mm. We're learning how to get the best experience from the tool as it presents itself. And we're yeah. going through stages. Yeah. You staying on Twitter, Bobby? Yeah, I, I haven't completely removed it. I'm finding myself spending a lot less time on Facebook now. And yeah. so... Oh, um, okay. So there's and, a natural... Uh, yeah, there's a well, natural uh, a process that's going on here, moving from one platform to another. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. true. I, I started with LinkedIn and then went to Facebook and then Twitter and all that. Yeah. Through that sequence. Yeah. All right. Well, very good. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you both for participating in our little panel discussion on that. We'll talk to you after the break. Mm. All right, bye-bye. Okay, welcome back to the show. Let's get more into some Dr. Fuchsia topics a little bit, shall we? I'm ready. Okay, let's look at the energy okay, sector. Yeah, yeah. There's some interesting things going on in the energy sector. I've noticed that there seems to be a division for new energy, either towards creating better batteries, which is the America and Europe are really into, and creating hydrogen, hydrogen fuel. Which okay. is more Japan. So better better storage and better yeah. fuel. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a new thing I learned about this week called red hydrogen. Okay. What's yeah, red hydrogen? Red hydrogen. Red hydrogen. I heard of green hydrogen. I heard of blue mm. hydrogen, but gray. 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 <laughs> I've heard of gray <laughs> hydrogen. Explosive hydrogen. Yeah. But red yeah. hydrogen seems to be very big in Japan, and that's where they're creating massive amounts of hydrogen using the heat from nuclear reactors. Oh, that's why it's red. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. A nuke. Yeah, I guess. red. Yeah, exactly. Nuke, yeah. nuke <laughs> because interestingly enough, a lot of the hydrogen in the West comes from the petrochemical industry. It's just a byproduct of the petrol industry. Mm-hmm. So it's not exactly a green way of making hydrogen from Well, natural gas, it's a natural residue that yeah. they just can claim and turn into hydrogen, right? But right. they're drilling well, for other kinds of gas. Well, hydrocarbons. Hydrocarbons. Hydrocarbons, they just knock off the carbon and you got the hydrogen. Mm-hmm. And that's what they call green hydrogen, right? Yeah. Is from the fossil fuels. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Green fossil but this, fuel. This is different. I this mean, is it. Yeah. This is red hydrogen. And yeah. they're very excited about that. Mitsubishi is really big into this. And I think even Fukushima is doing this now. The power plant there is creating hydrogen. And then there's yeah. the hydrogen fuel cells that come so from that. So can I ask, does yeah. that mean that they're tapping into radioactive decay or something like that? What no, are they doing? No, nothing so <laughs> what is this fancy. R- what is this red hydrogen from? <laughs> It's from 3,000 degrees heat from the nuclear reactor. It's the heat of the reactor that causes the split of water oh. into hydrogen and oxygen. Heat. Yeah. It's a heat. Well, yeah, it's heat, yeah. So they're using heat as an energy to split the crack water, yeah. Hmm. And then the hydrogen fuel cells can use the hydrogen very efficiently, and airplanes can go much further distances than they can on battery technology currently Hmm. so it looks like a very viable approach all right so they're using heat to charge up or a bunch of hydrogen batteries i know not batteries fuel cells fuel cells yeah Uh yeah Uh so it's very interesting though as i mentioned in the west we're getting better with battery tech all the time and i've got some good stories there as well but I'm, i'm starting to cover both of them. We just got a comment from Gregory. He says blue hydrogen is made from gas and hydrocarbons. Blue hydrogen. Oh, it's blue. Yeah, it's not green. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. it's blue. <laughs> okay. Green's got to be made probably by electricity, right? By Yeah, maybe maybe that's it. Yeah. yeah where you you can use a little electricity to separate the hydrogen from the oxygen and water molecules. You think green is maybe just a metaphor for sustainable? It gives you that impression, doesn't uh, it? Yeah, it's probably greenwash. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I know methane is blue. That's a hydrogen source too. <laughs> well, what's great about hydrogen is it can be burned. Yeah. You know, like normal fuels. The only byproduct when you burn it is water. It has a decent energy density. It's a promising solution for aviation, especially where weight requirements are really important in terms of fuel. And also it can be a very good way to store energy for long periods of time. It's not very dense. You have to compress a lot of hydrogen into a a pressurized container Mm. right? for for it to be useful. And so that eco-friendliness of it. Or they take the hydrogen, they put it into this gray paste and they store it as a paste instead of a battery or it turns into a hydrogen battery that way a paste yes i haven't heard of the paste bobby i I have heard of a powder like a like you can put hydrogen in terms of a a powder that then is heated and it releases the hydrogen which is another interesting approach oh yes and and greg points out that green is from electrolysis which is what i thought from water oh okay yeah that sounds right Yeah. yeah And a challenge to many places in the world is the struggle with water scarcity. But uh, researchers at the University of Melbourne in Australia have developed a new technique that is able to create hydrogen out of moisture in the air. You don't even need it from the ocean or from the ground. What's more, it even works with low humidity. Humidity, say, of deserts. And so the ability to use moisture from the air... It's called direct air electrolysis, or you use the technology as a direct air electrolyzer, and it will give you fuel. It will give you the hydrogen fuel. Mm. Most areas on Earth with high solar and wind potentials lack fresh water. So in this case, uh, you just get it directly from the air anywhere. So access to water is solved. You know, that's one of the big issues 
of where people live on this planet is access to water. Most towns are by water supplies. But if we could get all the water we needed from the air, it would decentralize towns even greater than what they are now. We'd be able to be in the middle of a desert and have a town. So it depends I guess on, if you could just buy your own air water sponge. <laughs> yeah. But that seems like yeah. seems pretty far off. Yeah, Al, didn't you report about using those, it's like those aerogels or screens that were capturing That's moisture, right. There's a University water, of Texas. collecting water? Yeah, University of Texas invention, it's like a hydrophilic sponge. It just collects water from the air, and it can be very non-humid air. It can be desert air and still get lots of water from it. And then you put an electrical current on the sponge, and it releases the water instantly. So it automatically collects the water. It's like a very efficient kind of dehumidification process. Pretty interesting. So yes, I yeah. think that those technologies could allow us to live in more places without the fear of not having water. And as we know, where's your source of water is a big part of where we choose to live. Yeah. Yeah, like you're from the desert, Mrs. Future. You should know. I do, Yeah. You know, like Las Vegas, is a water table has gone so far down lately, it's, it's ridiculous. Shocking. Well, yeah. many years ago, Las Vegas decided to bring their water in by train. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There you go. So we got a caller? We got several. Okay, let's All right. do our callers for the last 20 minutes here. Okay, it's Downtown Al in Watsonville. Downtown Hi, Al, downtown. hey, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the whole hydrogen economy thing. And, you know, I'm curious if we could use the existing distribution infrastructure for natural gas, you know, the methane that's piped everywhere, hmm. and run hydrogen through that and maybe recompress it. And I know in a lot of cases they actually have, they use the term fuel cell, which is not the one that produces electrons from the recombining of chemical components, but like for race cars, uh -huh. it's basically like a sponge that reduces the, you know, the gas pressure of the hydrogen so they can more efficiently store it. I know there's been a lot of research in that, sort of these tanks that have these sponge interiors hmm. and it reduces, you know, the gas pressure. Yes, that's so important um, for being able to get yeah. enough in a small container. Yeah, and you know, I, I kind of wonder if we could use it in the same way too. If you were running it to houses, could you also use it again for heating to where you would use it for your cooking or stoves or whatever else, house heating? Because that's so much more efficient to produce the fuel that's going to burn directly and release all its heat there instead of like what we're doing now with burning natural gas and then running turbines to produce electricity. There's a loss in efficiency mm -hmm. and then pushing it through all these wires that then just turn it into heat again with resistance heaters in a house. Mm -hmm. I think it could solve a lot of different things and it's really clean. It's really cool. At one point, I worked on a promotional thing for East Bay Transit there, and they had two of these big Van Hool buses that were run on fuel cells. Yeah. And there was a Chevron steam cracking plant there at the, you know, it was a real small thing, at the bus barn there, and it was taking natural gas and cracking it into hydrogen. And then they were fueling these buses all day long. And then at night, they'd park them back in the bus barn, and they'd hook them into the grid, and they'd provide electricity for the grid. So they just ran continuously. And it was so cool to see the exhaust. Like, they had some of these supervisors' cars. They were Mazda cars. And their exhaust was this little trickle of water that came out yeah, near the yeah, front wheel out of this tube. 
Yeah, and I actually put my hand under it and drank some of it, you know, and it tasted like distilled water. Right, totally clean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a real exciting solution in addition to batteries. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it so. is. And I think the main criticism has been it's more expensive than alternatives like heat pumps or solar thermal. But those issues can be overcome. They just need to put more attention into it. Right now, it's considered to be about twice as expensive as using gas for home heating, according to the latest studies. I think that's largely due to the infrastructure for hydrogen hasn't had been built out yet. Right, and that, that's what's so exciting about this red hydrogen, you know, if you're able yeah. to just crank out tons of that, and hopefully it's more efficient than the electrolysis even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, that, that'd be really cool. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, so it's looking brighter for hydrogen as, as we move into the future here. All right, thanks, Al. Yeah, appreciate right. your call, Al. Great to hear from yeah. you. Yeah, thanks. Good. thanks. Always, yeah. Good, yeah. always good to hear from you. Yeah. yeah, there are hydrogen pilot projects going on around the world right now. Scotland is big into this, hydrogen heating it's being one of the topics all right we'll be right back uh, we've got more callers on the line yes we do and we'll be right back with you after our break Okay, welcome back to the show. We've got a number of callers. We're going to get right to you in a moment. But first, a couple of uh, texts just came in. One from Greg on hydrogen production by microbial biomass conversion. Very interesting article on microbes and creating hydrogen. Yeah, and hydrogen paste, which is a new fuel option for running small machines and motorcycles and that sort of thing. Paste is made out of magnesium, which combines with the hydrogen to form magnesium hydride. I guess it's pretty easy to get the hydrogen out of the paste. It's stored in a cartridge, and it's released by means of a plunger mixed with water from an onboard tank, and it generates gas as required. doesn't need as much pressure as a pure hydrogen tank would. Pretty interesting. All right, well, I see. We're, our, we're yeah. a very clever species, and we're moving forward very fast with the hydrogen economy. Mm -hmm. So let's go to our colors. All righty, let's say hello to Wendy in Ben Lomond. Hi, Wendy. Hey, Wendy, how you doing? Oh, hello, doing great. How are you guys doing? Good. Oh, wonderful. wonderful. Well, I just, Good, uh, Wendy. Well, I just saw one of these hydrogen projects go by the, by the Santa Cruz bus system is hydrogen. Mm -hmm. Are they? Oh. Um, so, if, yeah, and, and they're always looking for people, and if you want to get in on that economy, and it's a great way to get a job and maybe be the next Elon Musk of hydrogen. Yeah, I make gas for the bus company. <laughs> Indeed. Or just, you know, just learning the process. I mean, I wonder why they have uh, driver shortages, and I'm like, well, that's kind of not the norm, is it? <laughs> but so getting some techies in there would be really fun. Yeah, who could really enjoy it. I do have and a friend I, there. I will check that out. That's and I wanted to remind you, you were talking about this little thing that they went through in this movie back in the, in 77. It was called Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. Hathween, yeah. Moisture Farm. That was what they were doing. And isn't it basically you, you just have to cool the air and make condensation. So you need electricity to run a, an old refrigerator open and put a pan in the bottom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, de simple so de dehumidifying <laughs> processes. Yep. So just anything that's colder than the air will make water. Yeah, I guess there's yep. ways of figuring out how to make that more and more efficient as time goes yeah. on. You take solar, you got too much sun, not enough water, you just put it together. And you just got to make sure you don't get burned like Uncle Owen did by the Empire. 
right. <laughs> so true. All right, I got to leave on that one. All right. Thanks, Wendy. Thanks, Wendy. Okay, that's great. Yeah, Tataway, that's right. They had those little atmospheric distillers. That was uh, if you're pulling the water out. All right, uh, who else we got, Mrs. Future? Okay, we got Bill in Live Oak. Hi, Bill. Hey, Bill. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hey, Bill. Hello. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that hydrogen is not like natural gas. Somebody suggested just put natural or put hydrogen in natural gas pipelines. It doesn't work. Hydrogen is so small it leaks out. It needs special, very expensive. Yeah, um, I was wondering about that because because of the size of the molecule, it, you're dealing right. with a very different type of right. fitting. It's very uh, difficult. It, it doesn't create a blue flame like on your stove. You know, it's more or less clear, or you can't yeah. even see it's lit sometimes yeah mm. oh yeah it's it's very interesting but i mean it's not a slam dunk you don't just pump hydrogen through existing pipelines it's right right designed. you probably have to design special hydrogen pipelines or at least put it into these other forms like the paste or cooling it or make it on site from my microbial biomass conversions or something that makes more sense than than pipelines well thanks for that bill it's a matter of scale that's uh -huh. you know what it would cost to do it so are you aware of what a solution would look like? No, I don't know much about it, except that it's far more difficult to contain than natural gas. Right. Or any other gas. It's the smallest yeah. gas there is. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. But we do store and it, though. We, we do have well, we do. tanks. Well, we do. Right? But there's a way to go. There's a lot to be done before it's uh, feasible. Right. Yeah. It needs an infrastructure. Right, exactly. Right. I think that's the biggest criticism of it is that we don't have the hydrogen infrastructure in place as we do with the petrochemical. We got the hydrogen mm -hmm. we got the hydrocarbon inf infrastructure, but not the hydrogen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. methane is a much bigger molecule for sure. Yeah, good yeah, that, very good point. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks Bill. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Good yeah. Job. All right. Thanks for Bye. calling. Bye bye. Yeah, so there you go. So hydrogen is still got a ways to go, but it's very promising. You know? Yeah, and the byproduct when you actually consume the hydrogen to get energy out of it is water. So yeah, that's what yeah. It kind if of they feels were, like it, you'd have to have an like an on-demand system would be the way to go with that, so that the hydrogen moves around mm. in a different form than pure hydrogen, and then you get it from the water where you are, something like that. Well, yeah, so that's why the paste might be an option, mm -hmm. possibly. Greg just sent us the article that we had covered a few weeks ago. UCSC, that's our own campus right here, makes green hydrogen breakthrough, where they turn water to energy at room temperature. Mm -hmm. They found a way here at the campus to produce hydrogen using unique aluminum nanoparticles that react with water at room temperature. Oh, that's incredible. Isn't it? So apparently so, uh, you know, Believe it or not, plants are converting water into hydrogen and oxygen at room temperature. There was a Nobel Prize given to the analysis of the chlorophyll action. This was like 2006, I guess, they got the Nobel Prize. They figured out that the ATP cycle, which creates chlorophyll, was actually cracking water during that cycle at room temperature. So that just shook the whole water world. That's pretty <laughs> cool. That, yeah. Apparently, so so I, I think a, a synthetic chlorophyll or a synthesis of this chlorophyll action at room temperature is probably going to change how we desalinate and create hydrogen out of water from the ocean, probably. 
that sounds very promising. There are fermentation-based systems using microorganisms like bacteria that can break down organic matter and produce hydrogen. And then the, wow. the organic matter can be refined sugars, uh, the raw biomass sources uh, can be like corn, stover, uh, even wastewater. And no light is required, so these methods can be done in what they call dark fermentation, dark fermentation methodologies. So that's where the microbes are helping us create the hydrogen. All we need, is, it sounds like, is the infrastructure for properly storing it once we've created it or putting it into the paste efficiently without costing a lot of energy to make the paste and being able to get it out of the paste effectively. So <laughs> that, plus, you know, interestingly enough, our country is more focused on the battery tech, and there are breakthroughs that are going on in that arena, too. I have one story in that that was an interesting engineering this week about a new battery that offers a, a range of 621 miles on just one charge. Oh, yeah, I didn't get to look at that. Tell us about that. It's the third yeah. generation of CATL's cell-to-pack technology. CATL is planning to mass produce this product called Keelin, Q-I-L-I-N, next year. It's uh, named after the legendary creature in Chinese mythology. It offers a record-breaking volume utilization efficiency of 72% and an energy density of 416 kilojoules per pound, mm. which is the highest integration level ever achieved so far. So what is this Qilan made of? It's the lithium iron phosphate magnesium. I don't know. There's, it's a variation of the lithium iron phosphate. So it's fireproof. Like, you know, you could blow it up and the thing will not uh, that's catch huge. fire. That's huge. You, you hear about the problems yeah, about the Teslas catching fire, especially yeah. in Florida after I've been underwater for a while. I think these could be candidates for aerial drones and aviation because it's lighter weight. It's lighter than the old lithium iron batteries, in fact, and it's lighter than the regular lithium iron phosphate, which are heavier than lithium ion, uh, but these are lighter. Fast charging. Uh, or more energy. Did. More energy. Yeah. Yeah, fast charging yeah. in 10 minutes. One ten minute, minutes. guys. It's yeah. time to say yeah. goodbye. Oh, wow. Uh, so what's going to go on? we got hydrogen fast. we got batteries. Um, who's going to win here? Yeah. Are we going to have both? Yeah. I guess we'll have both. I, I love the competition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, someone's going to win. <laughs> yeah. So, should our next car be electric or hydrogen? Uh, well, we'll yeah. see. Well, thanks, Bobby, for being on the show today. Appreciate your input, as always. Yeah. And thank yeah. you, Mrs. Future. Oh, yeah. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Future. Uh, thanks, callers. Thanks, callers. Thank thanks, listeners. Santa Cruz. It's yeah. been a pleasure. Yeah. See yeah. you next Future Tuesday. Yeah. yeah.